You like podcast? We got a podcast. You like books? We're talking about books. You like people who write books? We're talking with authors. You like writing? So do we. You're at the right place. Hey, it's another Wednesday, and enjoy this episode. <laughs> Hi, I'm Christine Sneed, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Cool. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Christine Sneed. She's the author of the novels Paris, He Said, Little Known Facts, and the short story collections Portraits of a Few People I've Made Cry and The Virginity of Famous Men. Hopefully somebody will cry during this episode. Christine, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Tony. It's fantastic to have you. Um, Welcome to Los Angeles. How long have you been in Los Angeles? Well, I moved here with my partner Adam in June last year, so about a little over ten months. And uh, and you and you came from Chicago. Were you in Chicago? Yeah, we actually lived in Evanston, which was just—it's the most—it's the closest northern suburb on the North Shore. So we were sitting directly on top of the city, and we, I lived there quite a while. I was in Evanston on and off for about. 18 years yeah and it's a great I mean it's a great little suburb of Chicago it's where Northwestern is and yeah it's a, it's a nice place I liked it a lot Northwestern is actually probably a really good um, a really good branding term for where they're at I guess yeah I mean people then if they don't know Evanston they usually know the university yeah and the university but, owns so much of the real estate in Evanston too like all the all the primo stuff on the lake yeah. that's kind of a controversy because they don't pay taxes and they have the best, you know, real estate in the in the area. So they try to. I mean, they do stuff to try to involve the community in programs. It's a great school. I mean, they have so many amazing programs, and it's you know, it's I they they're not getting kicked out. I'll put it that way. <laughs> That's funny. That's like Academy of Art College in San Francisco. I think they're essentially a real estate company. Oh, and by the way, we're a college. <laughs> <laughs> Which school? Academy of Art College. Oh, where is that? I don't even know. It's like all, it's, they just, it's Knob Hill, Tenderloin. It's all in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, it's, yeah, I, and I teach at Northwestern too. So I, but fortunately most of the work I'm doing now is all online other than a few things I need to go back there for each year. Um, But yeah, Northwestern, I also like their colors. They're purple and white. (laughs) Purple and white? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They, um. I knew that I, th- I think they have the best color scheme. I used to wear purple almost every day in high school. I, I'm not really sure why, but at the time I loved the color. I know why, and his name is Prince. Exactly, actually. That was one of the things. I remember getting Purple Rain. I think it was like in 1985 or 1986. I think, or maybe even 1984. I don't remember exactly, but it was right in the mid 80s, and I was obsessed with Purple Rain. As, you, as we all should be, Purple Rain's just. I think you got to think about it. That's got to be one of the greatest albums ever. I think the. I yeah, I agree. Um, I had it on vinyl. I just thought Prince was very pretty in his roughly, oh, yeah. his roughly shirts and his yeah. little boots with heels. And I saw him. Did you ever see him in concert? I never did. I, I'm really, I really kick myself for that because that just would have been fantastic. I saw. Yeah, I mean, it was. He put on a great show. I went. I think it was like 2003 or four, and yeah. he and he probably changed wardrobe about eight or nine times oh, over the course of maybe two hours, if 
yeah, it was around two hours, I think, the show. Yeah. But he he must have had Velcro because he just like whipped stuff off and then he'd run back on stage and be in something else. Yeah. Fabulous. Now, um, did he? Did, what, okay, now I'm going to ask you a question about that. You know, oh, speaking of exactly what songs were played on that concert, because he did get converted to Jehovah's Witness, and at some point, like Erotic City and all those got pushed off of his set list. Was he still doing like Erotic City in those years? You know, I, God, I don't remember. Um, I think he might have, because if it was 03 or 04, yeah. he hadn't yet come out with Cinnamon Girl. Okay. And was that the album that kind of was like after his conversion? I don't know. I really should listen to the even the after stuff, because he's just fantastic. I, I got to go back to Prince and just go everything after. Because I did have a little bit of like, oh, crap, dude, what are you doing? You're, you're going into what I got out of. But at the same, what was weird, when he died, I got a phone call from... Well, one of those like Us magazines or something. Yeah, they were trying to get quote. They were trying to push me for quotes about talking shit about him being a Jehovah's Witness, and I said, "You're not going to get anything out of me." And then they were like, really, like kind of courting me and going, "Hey, we also know you wrote a book, so we'll totally like mention you know the book and the film." And I was just like, "Seriously, I'm the wrong guy to talk to." He made an adult decision, and I have nothing bad to say about him. And I just kept repeating that and. <laughs> And it, I gave them nothing. They, they, but they were digging. Yeah. I, you know, I always thought it was interesting that he and Michael Jackson, I think Michael Jackson was also a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. That they were these incredible musicians. Yeah. But just seemed to have had these incredibly fucked up childhoods that yeah. just determined who they were, obviously, as adults. But yeah. just, I mean... I don't know, like my family is, my mother's side of the family, she's the oldest of nine kids and they're Roman Catholic. And my grandmother actually yesterday, coincidentally, sent me a, a note, cause I'd sent her an Easter card, I think. And then she was writing me back and she'd included this poem, which was really a prayer. And she's like, you know, anytime you're ready, God is waiting for you. And my grandma's never been a proselytizer really. I mean, on and off a little bit when I was a kid, cause I didn't really want to go to church when we'd visit her. Cause she lives in central Wisconsin. And at the time I was a little kid in Illinois. And I, I was saying to my partner, I'm like, I'm 47. I, I mean, I, I don't know if my grandma thinks I'm going to have a midlife crisis or, what but I, I'm just so I mean and I can't even have any kind of intellectual conversation with her about religion because it's one of those things like it's her faith and you just yeah. you and it's so hard to argue about anything that's so emotional like that I mean I could not be coherent either I'd just be like well I have a very different view of the world and spirituality and you know and then of course like how do you reconcile all the sexual abuse and you know right. and she, I don't think she even thinks about that because it's just she's 87 you know and yeah. she's chosen I mean she's been a devout Catholic I think her entire life she was the one of like 11 children you know so very similar her upbringing was probably very similar to my mother's you know wow so well I'm having a midlife crisis she's welcome to send me cards I might join <laughs> There's always room. <laughs> yeah, I think her church, yeah, if you want to move to central Wisconsin, um, she goes to Green Lake, the late, Our Lady of the Lake Parish. It's a beautiful little area, and it's a beautiful church and everything. But, you know, I'm. it brings, it gives her life meaning. I think, you know, it's just, because so I'm just like, well, I don't even want to engage, you know. I don't want to, because it would just not, it would probably not go well. Like, she's not, her mind's not going to be changed, and I'm probably not going to change my yeah, mind, yeah. you know. So it's weird because it's like we we're trying to 
I mean, for me, I feel like I'm always trying to figure it out. And that's that's where the writing comes in because that kind of helps me try to figure all this stuff out. It's like if I don't write, I'm in a very bad mood and I'm in a very bad place. It's like, yeah. you know, people are like, oh, oh what, it must take a lot of discipline. I'm like, you don't want to see me when I'm not writing. <laughs> it's not it's not about that. It's about keeping the homicide and suicide down. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah I, I mean, I feel the same way, too. I really... Um, just can't imagine. I mean, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, yours, but also Brian Koppelman's The Moment. I don't know if you've ever listened to any of the episodes on that. And I also listened to this one that I think it's relatively new. It's by this Yale film and TV writer, produ- professor named Aaron Tracy. It's called To Live in Dialogue in L.A. Oh, it's I think really you told good. me about that one. I, and I have it written down. I still need to download that yet. They're both really good. And they I've been listening to a lot of episodes on The, on the Moment because I recently just, just started I subscribe to it and they talk so much about you know the tension that most writers and creative people feel about you know the process and I mean this is sort of tangential to what you were saying but our need to create work and despite how much we have to deal with rejection or self-doubt it's just it's if you're I mean and you're a real writer you know we're both like really serious writers we've been doing it for a long time it's like you just have to work you it's it, it's like meditation. I mean, it, it keeps yeah. you sane. And it's, yeah. and also like they, yesterday I was listening to an episode and it was so interesting because he was talking with his guest. I think it might've been the guy who wrote the screenplay to Arrival, Eric Heiser. I don't remember his last name exactly, but I think he, they were saying something about like, you know, people think there's always this creative voice and there's always this crea- critical voice in your head and you have to really mute the critical voice when you're writing. And, and there's also like this voice that constantly says like, you're crazy, this is never going to work. And, I mean, I, 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 I realize I'm like, yeah, I mean, I've been doing this since I was in my late teens, you know, and so I just have, maybe it's just like stupidity or, or, or arrogance, but I'm just like, no, I, I know I can do this. And like, I've dealt with so much rejection and I, and I just, am like, oh, well, you know, I mean, you get mad and then instead of feeling self-pity, I just feel angry. I'm like, well, I'm going to show them, you know, it's kind of like the little dog barking at the big dog. I'm just like, I'm going to, I'm going to come back and bite you. You're going to see, you know, I, it's, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but it just was making me think about, you know, the writing as a vocation and also just like this mental health thing. I, I, I mean, like you, if I'm not producing new work, whether or not I ever do anything with it or not, who knows, but I just feel nuts if I'm not working a little bit even like an hour or half an hour if I'm really busy with other stuff like student papers or whatever it is that I'm dealing with I think you brought up something that is right right there that is the success of how to be a successful writer and that is what I cut with so there's a couple points there one the rejection and the no is like oh yeah well I'm going to show you because that's been the driving force of my life because yeah. I've been told no on so many levels and then uh, and then the other thing was um the little bit of delusion we need that with we almost have to it's it's such a painstaking process and takes so long that we have to have we have to put aside the this will be rejected and be like this is going to be the man booker nominee (laughs) yeah you know it's interesting like just a tangent to what you're saying about books and prizes and also the um sort of i guess the whole literary and cinematic worlds the and the fact that like i i have friends who've been extraordinarily successful with their books and um 
they're you know they're good writers and and I'm it's such it's such an interesting thing though to see like what our culture elevates and yeah. and also just I mean again I feel like I'm just going my mind is darting all over but dealing with disappointment you know like yeah. I've released four books with Bloomsbury um, and they you know it's interesting because like they've been reviewed favorably and but you realize like it's so hard to sell books like I I've watched one friend who has just her book started slowly and then it took off because it began getting award nominations and it just took off very well but initially for the first couple months she was like oh my god I'm not selling any copies and I got all these great reviews and I can't believe no one's reading it and now it's just everywhere and she's everywhere and um, I I'm just I I feel like I that stuff inspires me like I talk about this with my students I think it's very easy to be envious and and feel like people don't deserve their success but I'm like you know you basically you there's this great I think it's like a Chinese proverb a flower doesn't look at the flower next to it it just blooms it's so I know I think about that all the time and I and I am teaching young writers now too I'm I'm always talking about you know don't worry if you're not as good as you want to be and if you have classmates who you think are better than you it's not important but in literary culture like I feel like I guess to circle back to what I was saying before everyone feels like it's a zero-sum game and that's where I get caught up I'm like oh my god because this person sold like 300,000 copies and I'm not going to sell any copies and it's just like it's you know I mean it is true that there are fewer New York publishers who are acquiring literary fiction but and I, I mean, and I've been in a situation now too, where I've been writing new manuscripts, novels, and not being able to sell them because yeah. I'm not, I'm a mid-list author, which is like the curse, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, and even like small presses, I just they're so overwhelmed now with submissions from agents because the big presses are turning down almost everything. Yeah. And and I mean, I guess one of the reasons why I moved out here too is because I wanted to start writing screen material and I had taken a class a long time ago in Chicago when I was working at the School of the Art Institute on screenwriting so I learned the format but working now in this medium it's so interesting and it's hard but I mean I guess (laughs) to sort of like wrap up what I'm saying it's I just feel like in the end you really just have to look at your work and not look up and not compare because I've heard other people say like it's comparison sickness yeah. you just and then like but it is so hard to shut out especially with social media yeah. like all, all these pressures that you feel and I'm I'm just so glad I when I was a teenager in the 80s we didn't have Twitter and Facebook oh, <laughs> oh my god if that that just it kind of blows my mind I don't know how I would have grown up in that titan and with that as the normality, you know, but I don't know what my parents, my grandparents were thinking when they're like, he's got that color television and that Atari. Oh, boy. You know, <laughs> I, I yeah, I mean, it's that is such it's such a complicated topic. I mean, I think about this all the time because I have friends who are really writers as well, who are really savvy with Twitter, but they spend so much time. It appears to me anyway, maybe they don't spend that much time, but it just seems like they are able to post many times a day. Yeah. I've heard that something with the algorithm for Twitter, like you have to post seven times a day to, oh, really? to really optimize your account and your huh. use of, of that software and that 
media site. I just, and I'm like seven times a day. I mean, it's so interesting because like ego is so invested in that too. And I'm like, I don't want to be a pain in the ass. Like, I don't want people to think I'm an egomaniac. Right, I mean, exactly. I just, and, but part of it is like, well, I'm just going to retweet stuff. And then I'm thinking, but then I have to look, I mean, I, then you have to look at the Twitter feed and like retweets. I, I, I'm sure you've had conversations with other people you've interviewed about social media, you know, and I just, Frankly, I wish it didn't exist. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind. Like, um, this was back when I was still doing the online dating thing, and now I can't even do it because it's so weird. But there's, they had this uh, thing. Um, if you could, if you could solve any problem in the world, what would you do? You know, and everyone's like, oh, hunger, oh, world peace. I was just like, blow up Twitter. That was that was how I would solve our world problems right oh, now. It would, it would actually have made an enormous difference in 2016, for example. Yes. And now, too, I mean, oh, God, yeah, I, I mean, I, one of the things that I think about a lot, like, how do you balance the public with the personal as a writer, you know, like, if you're on Twitter, like, your publisher wants you to be on Twitter, promoting yourself, and then I try to promote other writers and other causes, I mean, I, I feel really weird about saying, well, oh, I have a new book, or I just got a story published, or, you know, or I'm sending, my, my agent's sending my novel out, and it's not getting picked up, and I'm like, I don't really want to. I just, I don't want people to, I just don't want people to respond to stuff like that. I don't want to put it out there, you know, and, but people do that all the time. And I'm always like, I kind of admire it in a way. I'm like, how do you do that? Like, no, I can't. I don't know if it's a generational thing, but people my age do stuff like that too. I don't, I don't, I can't, that stuff is so private in some ways. I can certainly tell people one-on-one about it or I'll talk about it if I'm on a panel at a literary conference or something, but I just don't want to put that out there, you know? I understand. I have I have the worst time. Yeah, you know, like, like if I'm doing an event, then I can go. Oh, okay, yeah, come see this, and I'm reading with other with these other people or something. But um, like with social media, this, I, I, I read this book. <laughs> look at me all darting around. I read this book called "Ego Is the Enemy." I don't know if you've heard of that by Ryan Holiday. Yeah, yeah, it's kind. Of, it's more about stoicism. It, it goes on the stoicism route, but. After that, I every time I post to social media, I'm like, I think, am I doing this for my ego or am I doing this to communicate to my friends? And when I when I say my friends, it's not the five thousand that I have; it's about the hundred and fifty that are my actual friends. And so, and um, and then I see other people's social accounts, and I'm and it's then I'm just like, oh, you are just posting ego like crazy. But at the same time. We have, I have to like dissect that and go, that is not their lives. That's the social media lives. Cause I know they're weeping in fetal position two hours a day. So <laughs> that's the great irony of social media. I feel like, I mean, there's so much, this is not a new thing. We've heard this in many places from many places and many people, but like, you know, there's this idealized self that's always put forth on Facebook or like the schlub who's, you know, the sad sack and that's your persona. Yeah. But I, I just think that, um, I don't know, like I, part of it is my parents were, are still, they're the most, my Adam said the same thing. He's, he's like, your parents have no filter. Like they're really who they are. And I so value that. I mean, despite the bluntness and sometimes what I construe as 
rudeness or a lack of consideration when they're just like, oh, I don't like that present. You know, I'm like, oh, you don't like that present? Okay. You know, at least try to be like cagey about it or just pretend you like it. I don't know. My mom is so funny. My mom's like the oldest of nine children who grew up very poor. Like, I remember her telling me she shared her bedroom with like three or four of her siblings when she was growing up. And I, I mean, anyway, so I always think about like how her character was informed by like people were not polite, you know, when she was growing up. So oh, she yeah. just, and I, but I'm like, I was raised to be excessively polite. Yeah. So, but I, but the thing is like, you know, people's idealized versions of themselves are what they put on Facebook. But yeah. even when I take a vacation, like I'm weird, I'm leery of posting photos yeah. of myself in some beautiful place and living out here in Pasadena, I don't even really post many pictures because most of my closest friends live in the Midwest, you know, and they usually have an, a hellish winter. Right. So I, I'm kind of like, oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to make them feel bad. And, you know, I realize that that instinct is so much related to like self-promotion, like, and being a writer, yeah. just the people who are often the most successful are the ones who have no qualms about promoting themselves all the time at any opportunity. And I'm kind of like, I don't know. Like, I just don't know if I don't think I want it that I don't want it that bad, obviously, because I don't want to constant. I mean, there are people, obviously, who are like really great writers and they somehow part of they become part of the zeitgeist or, you know, their books take off because they're just so well written and 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 they're of the moment. But I think a lot of people who are held up as great successes are often people who are just incredibly focused on putting themselves in front of as many people as they possibly could or can all the time and I'm kind of like well as writers we're actually pretty quiet people a lot of times and we actually should value solitude and privacy so it's so antithetical to the writer's life and also just being a creative person and a sensitive person like I feel like I just that's part of it is like that sensitivity to you know like well also humility I mean I, I just I know we're going all over the place with this discussion, but it's you've, you've listened things. <laughs> you've heard the show; it just goes all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're good at this. <laughs> You're doing it great. You're exactly how the guests are supposed to be on. Well, good. I I just yeah. I mean, I think about that a lot, and um, you know, balancing all these forces. It's just I. It, it amazes me. Um, how much I mean I and I've figured this out now after publishing several books the writing is actually the part that's easiest I mean it's not easy to write a good book but it's but it's easiest in the sense that you're the one who controls that fully until you give it to your editor and if someone buys it obviously you know whoever buys it until you give it to your editor you you have ultimate control over that part of the process but then everything else that comes along with it if you I mean in like you have you know there's so much about this in Buddhism and 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 other religions that are that are about like des- that focus on desire um, it's so hard not to want things you know yeah. and and then like how do you deal with disappointment and and I like I remember in grad school if this guy that I knew there he said you know our personalities are so informed by our insecurities because when we're nice people it's very easy I mean when things are going well it's very easy to be nice but it's whenever you confront a threat whether it's another person or some something you know whether it's a force outside of work or in work or whatever it is it's that's when your character really shows itself and 
and our insecurities really determine who we are. And I was like, that is true. I mean, I, I really think like, are you a people pleaser? Are you an asshole? Are you, you know, unsympathetic? You know, look at our president. You know, like he's an incredibly insecure person and he's yeah. a dick. Yeah. I mean, he's the biggest asshole I can think of. I mean, aside from like, you know, other dictators. I mean, probably I shouldn't say all this stuff, but I just, I feel like um, it's just so interesting to see how personality is expressed and, and among writers too, because so many of us are so introspective. And I, I just want, like, you know, there's so much discussion about, um, like in academia, for example, I know we both teach, and the, and the egos and the the jockeying for jobs and 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 people are just like well you're in the humanities how how come people aren't nicer <laughs> i'm like because we're people yeah. <laughs> it's just i mean it's so there's never i feel like there's never any shortage of things to write about or think about exactly what uh, so thank you for um killing my whole audience of republicans oh, no. first no i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> i don't I, I, <laughs> I have no, I have no idea who listens. Relatives in Wisconsin, (laughs) a lot of them. (laughs) I think are Republicans. Yeah. (laughs) You brought up something really interesting that intrigues me to no end, and I think I found this by being a writer. When you talked about um, how people are, um, you know, how people are assholes, or how the um, that when you were going through that, and what, what, and it showed their character. And that's kind of what we do as writers is we have a character and then we throw obstacles at them. And then what they do with those obstacles determines who they are as characters. So we fuck them up as much as possible. But it kind of mirrors real life, except it's a much slower progress. But when things aren't going well or, or, some, or, uh, or something bad happens to a person, then what do we do individually to adjust tells uh, tells other people what our character is how how we come out of it do we come out of it like an asshole and you know punish other people do we come out and work on ourselves and it's 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 just so funny to relate it back to writing because that's kind of what we do in writing is take characters and throw obstacles at them and then our then we learn about them and then our readers learn about them and know their quote character no I mean you really summed up something that when I teach I guess like story arc or the narrative arc in a story especially short story the idea that your character your main character has to have a flaw and that's where the story comes from because if you had a character who always did the right thing then you wouldn't really have much of a story so it's that moment of self-knowledge in the story that I find myself I'm always writing toward. Like there would be a series of decisions that this main character has made or a series of events that happen. And then there's the, you know, the crisis or the moment of understanding or realization. But really the whole thing is taking you to this point where your main character has a moment of self-knowledge that is usually very difficult for that person. Because there are a couple, there are, there are many things you can do, but the most extreme is, well, the character's so upset by what he or she has learned about themselves that they kill themselves but I never end a story that way because like I, and I tell my students like you can't end a story with a suicide like unless it's like a memoir or something I don't know but you but <laughs> if, it's a, if it's a memoir then not they, their own. <laughs> yeah 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 if, if it's a memoir and they kill themselves at the end then they then somebody else has well what would the confeder- confederacy of dunces yeah. that's 
that that kind of worked in a weird way to that. Well, he, yeah, I mean, John Kennedy Toole, yeah, that is, he, so, yeah. he, well, his, he had tried to publish it, but then his mother ended up, you know, having to go to Walker Percy. Yeah. And then he's like, oh my God, this is a brilliant book. But, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like there, that moment of extremity is the moment of realization in the story. And it doesn't have to be anything major. It could just right. be like your character goes to the grocery store and doesn't want to buy the expensive oat milk because even though his wife asked him to get the expensive oat milk, he realized I can't spend $5 for a quart of oat milk. And then he knows the marriage is over because they're not compatible or whatever, yeah, you know? Yeah. But I mean, that it's that's, to, that's the most interesting thing is always that moment. Like what happens then when that character finds this out about him or herself or themselves if, if it's a trans character so yeah I I think about that a lot you know and it's and for me I don't know how you write but it has to be an organic process too I mean I don't spend a lot of time outlining for longer projects I do I'll make notes like if I'm writing long form fiction or if I'm writing a screenplay I will write notes out before I start writing the screenplay I haven't written many at this point but that's helpful but for a short story or an article or an essay I'm not writing an outline i don't know if you do that oh no I, i'm not an outline guy i'll do a little notes here and there but then it's i i have i actually have to handwrite as much as possible just to get the get it all out and then i then i'm like wow that's a really shitty draft you know as i'm typing in <laughs> but but there's some there's usually some gems in there because i didn't get in my own way with that whole critical thing it's just like you know i have this thing write as fast as possible and just yeah. be with the uh, be with the right brain and going with the gut, and then and edits become the critical. But uh, yeah, I, oh, you know, you brought up something really interesting about um, the relate the guy with the relationship and the oat mi- was it oat milk? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that it's specifically oat milk. But what's so important, especially I mean, even in writing and even in real life, it's those little moments that can like. If that's a relationship moment where there's the realization of I cannot be with this person anymore. And it could be because the person needs $5 oat milk, but there's so much other stuff that has been going on. It's the $5 oat milk that breaks the whole relationship, theoretically, even though the relationship's been going to hell. Yeah, I mean, it's always that expression, death by a thousand cuts. That's usually when, you know, like there's been so many small things because that's life is made of all these tiny moments and these tiny decisions that then become the sort of monolith. And then, you know, that is when everything topples. If there's one final thing where you're like, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Like, you know, and maybe you're not. But at that moment, you think you are. And then you're done for like a month and then they get back together or who knows. But I... I, I mean, and I'm so interested in details as a writer. I'm, I just love, and, and maybe that, I mean, part of it is being a literary fiction writer too. I'm so much more interested in character than plot. Yeah. And most of the fiction that I read is literary, so it's not genre. And it's just, I mean, if, well, part of it is because I write realist fiction, you know? I'm just, I just want to see the world reflected back and by other writers or, you know, whomever. Like Alice Monroe, for example, who is a brilliant Canadian short story writer. She just, she writes pretty long stories. I don't know if you've read much of her work, but she just writes these incredible stories that, I, I, I mean, I've read all of her books and I just, you know, I, she's someone who just, it's like those come to Jesus moments when you first read a writer, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe how great she is. And she's someone that I think about all the time. 
And the same, actually, for a while, I was an enormous John Updike fan. And not as much as I used to be, but I think on a sentence level, it's really hard to beat someone like him because he's just, he was so, his language was so fluid and he just was fearless. I mean, he would really write about anything. I mean, some of it is like, well, he was a white male born in 1932. And so he just felt like he could do whatever he wanted. And he doesn't have the most enlightened views about people of color or about women. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But, you know, it doesn't mean you have to love everything. I think you just have to, like, you can learn a lot from a writer like him because he really could do almost anything. I mean, he wrote, he wrote poems, he wrote essays, he wrote art criticism, he wrote novels, he wrote short stories. He was a master short story writer. I don't know if you've ever read his book, Pigeon Feathers. I think he published it in 1960. It was only in his late 20s. But those stories are incredible. I'm like, how did someone in their 20s write these stories? They're incredible. They're just incredible. And he was looking, he was thinking about mortality in the title story, especially. He's, he was just so brilliant. I mean, I loved, I loved some of his stuff so much. Now, I've never read him, and that's what's so fun. One of the things that's so fun about, you know, doing this podcast is getting to know, getting the recommendations. There was a, I had a, um author, Stephen J. Schwartz. We we were on the podcast, and he's like, you got to read Martin Eden by Jack London. And I never read Jack London, and I just finished Martin Eden, and I'm like, oh, my God, I needed to read this book so bad right now in my life. I haven't read it either. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's for everyone, but for some odd reason, I needed to, I needed that book right now. And that's that's just the. He lived in SF. That's where he did a lot of his writing, right? Yeah, Jack London. Yeah, yeah. Oakland. Uh, uh, but uh, and speaking as well, uh, plot spoiler. But it's also on the internet, very easily to find. But here's a plot spoiler from Martin Eden. Yes, he kills himself in the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Well, Jack London, I guess you know, love him or not, he yeah, yeah. yeah he had license to do what he wanted to do. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't like how he killed himself. I was just like, oh, I come on. I remember something about it. Was it involving fire or gasoline? I can't remember. Wait, I oh, with, with, J- with Jack London himself or with his character? Oh, you mean, no, I meant the character. Yeah, he uh, he drowns himself. But the, w- but the way he does it, um, I just felt was kind of, uh, I mean, I've, I'm working on a book right now that has suicide in it. And I first looked it up, too. Yeah, I'm really good at suicide. Oh, no, don't say that. No, I think I'm writing. A, I, I think I'm writing about it, and I'm always exploring that theme because I have way too many close suicides in my life, and so maybe it's me trying to untangle what what that is. But with the with the Jack London book, he tries to drown himself, and then he does, and then he doesn't make it. So then he keeps trying to drown himself, and that's a very um, that type of suicide is doesn't play um, it doesn't play true to me because. Like usually, once people try to kill themselves, then they have a like a come to Jesus moment, and then then have the problem that oh shit, but it's too late. Instead of keep trying, that just feels weird to me. That's you know. Anyway, I thought I'd bring the podcast to a really you know uplifting level of. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's real. I mean, yeah. and I think there are even more people who are. I mean, social media. Like for example, I keep hearing about how freshmen entering college there's never been a time any at any time in the past where there's been this much mental health you know the need for mental health professionals to be there at at different camp on different campuses to meet with especially i mean freshmen because a it's disorienting to suddenly be with you know thousand or more of your peers in these lawless places basically i mean the dorm you have ras but 
you can do whatever you want. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, if you're sneaky enough about it, you can do anything. Yeah. So just the mix of the sort of like psychological toxicity that a lot of these kids have to confront in themselves because of probably social media. Yeah. But also just our culture is no, it's no more about taking your time. Everything has to be immediate. Yeah. And people feel like if they're not mastering something in like five minutes, they're a failure. And, I, and I'm just like, you know, especially as a writer or anything that requires a certain amount of skill to be good at, which is most things, if not everything, I'm always like trying to tell people, take the long view. You know, like it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, our media elevates people who were over or are or have seemingly been overnight successes. And it's such a boondoggle. I mean, most people spend even someone like Taylor Swift, who I think was like 19 when she had her first big hit. But I think she'd probably been writing or playing music for a number of years before she suddenly was splashed on every magazine, you know, cover around. She's, you know, was young, but, you know, most people... And also, like with self-publishing, people just like, "Oh, I wrote a book in two oh. weeks. I'm going to go publish it now on Amazon's Create Space." I'm like, "No, oh, yeah. <laughs> don't do it." Yeah. You know, like, do, if you're a, if you actually care about books, don't publish your work. I mean, I have a number of unpublished novels now that I know are good. Like, my agents went out with them, but I'm still not going to go self-publish them. No, because then it's just like, no, I've been published by a mainstream press four times I'm not going to go publish my own book now even though I love it and I wish someone would read it but no I just have to wait and I keep writing new stuff right. and and the same thing with like you know people kids students they they just want to be good at things immediately because they've seen enough examples of people but even Justin Bieber like he'd been singing for I mean he was a prodigy but he didn't you know he he probably spent a lot of time singing yeah. Before he taped all those YouTube videos that made him famous, like he, his mother and he had, he'd probably been taking singing lessons, or I don't even know that much about his origin story, but he he put in the time. You know, he didn't just suddenly wake up one morning and say, "Oh, I'm a huge, I'm going to be a huge star, and here I'm going to sing a song." You know, it's just most cases that's not what happens, but people think it is because I think our media erroneously celebrates these cases of you know startlingly you know these prodigies who are suddenly so good at something right. that takes years of mastery in most cases yeah it, and there's this well there's this guy i want to kill i've already talked about him before <laughs> this poor guy i gotta get in touch with him and go i don't want to kill you but i actually do he has a class that he's always promoting called how to write your book in 48 hours and i'm just yeah can you say that again <laughs> what <laughs> exactly and i'm just like but I'm sure he's getting tons of people into his class for that bullshit. Um, it's all snake oil, and it's all. And then you can create it yourself, and then you can put it out. And hours, like, is it like two thousand words? I mean, what? No. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's probably not. <laughs> but um. It's like automatic writing. Oh God, it's just, and it just um. And then they, they sell them. Then you can self-publish and you have a book. But what they don't understand, and I even get hit up for this podcast where they're like, oh, I have this book. And I'm just like, yeah, and you self-published it. it you're not coming on the show because I already know it's bad. And then I'll read, and then I, I never tell them that. But I'll read a little bit of it and I'll just be like, wow. And I, But they won't, just won't get a response. But that's across the board. I mean, it's okay. just, they haven't. They haven't put in the work of just being a writer. Right. And and also, so underlying the writing itself is how much have you read? Yes. 
Like, have you spent years of your life reading work that's been produced by minds greater than your own? Because that is where you're going to learn. Like, I read the writers who I love so much, like John Updike and Alice Munro, and more recently, David Saloy, who wrote um, All That Man Is, and Spring, and um, The Innocent, and his other book, um, well, he's got four novels, but he's a He's a British writer, but I think he's of Hungarian descent. But All That Man Is was like a Man Booker finalist. And it's an incredible novel. You have to read it. Grey Wolf published it in the U.S. And it's in paperback now. It's been out for a few years. But also Rachel Cusk, who wrote... She's written like 13 or 14 books, and I read every single one of them. Uh There are authors who, like with David Saloy, too, I read all four of his books. Like, I... When I read a book by someone who I'm like, this is mind-blowing. I just want to go and read everything they've written that I can find. Because I'm like, this is... It's beautiful. It's just this beautiful, immersive experience. And not every book is going to be as good. I mean, they would say that, too. They're like, well, I don't like all my books, you know. I mean, I suspect. But it's so exciting to encounter something like that. And if you're a real writer, you're going to feel that way. And if you're not, like, I remember when I first went to grad school in the 90s, and I was leaving an office job that I'd had for two years after college. I was at Navy Pier I don't remember what the reason was. I think my boss had taken me to lunch with my one of my coworkers, and we were just hanging around. And someone said, oh, you're going to go to grad school to get an MFA in creative writing. Well, you better not read too many other writers because you don't want to write like them. No. And I'm like, I would be lucky to actually write like Alice Monroe or yeah, John Updike. Yeah. I would be lucky. And I always thought, like, what? Why would? I mean, no, because you don't tell people who want to make film that they shouldn't watch movies. Right. Or musicians. Oh, don't listen to any music. I mean, come on. Yeah. I, I don't get that at all, yeah, because it's, I mean, especially when, especially as writers, we need to keep reading novels because that's the other part of the communication. It's oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fuel, yeah. yeah. So, someone, uh, someone said, uh, I, don't, I don't remember whose quote this was, um, reading is breathing in, writing is breathing out. And I went, ah, oh, that's, that's cool. it. Yeah. yeah, that's perfect. No, that, that really sums it up. Yeah, and, I, it's, and it's because of, because of the page is a new is the pa- reading words on a page is its own language, like people who tell stories orally and people who tell stories on the page, that page has it has to pull the person in, and that's almost like a it's a phenomenon that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I and I also feel like oh, I want to be able to do that, like because most serious filmmakers or writers or anyone will say who's you know doing something that requires serious craft, they'll say I was inspired by so and so. That's why I write, or that's why I make films, yeah. or that's why yeah. I play yeah. bass. You know, I love Getty Lee, or you know, I want to yeah. be a bass player like Getty Lee. So it's yeah, I mean. It's, I mean, that's a tired line of me just saying, like, oh, God, you have to read. But I think people forget, you know. And it's always curious to me when I talk to other writers who don't read a lot because maybe they have kids or they're just busy. And I'm like, but don't you just yearn to read? Like, I, it's like a physical need. And then if I, if I like, I subscribe to a couple of magazines and I always let those subscriptions, like, I let them pile up a bit, which is bad. But then I'm like, oh, I have to read, you know, back issues of Harper's. I'm behind. And then I'll set aside the books that I've been reading. And I'm, but I feel bereft or I just feel like half whole if I'm not reading a book. Because journalism is some of, like, Harper's is just, the people who write for that magazine are incredibly good. So it's, I learned to be a better writer from reading that magazine too. But there's something about you know the universe of a book you know it's different from a magazine certainly yeah it's really interesting that you brought up the part about uh, like certain things that make you want like make you know 
that you're going to be a writer or you're going to be a filmmaker. Uh, when I, because when I started reading books, which was into my twenties, because I couldn't read those naughty worldly novels. But the one that blew my mind was um, was Hunger by Newt Hampsoon. And by the time I got to that book, I went, "Oh crap, I'm a writer." And it was it was elation as well as this is going to be hard. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you have a book that really just kind of sent you off your path. Yeah, and you'll laugh because it's really a pot boiler. But um, I think I was 11 or 12 oh when when I first read. Um, the Thornbirds okay. <laughs> by, by Colleen McCullough. It was made into this ridiculously florid um, miniseries in the 80s, and it starred Richard Chamberlain and Rachel Ward and Brian Brown, and it was based on the novel by Australian writer Colleen McCullough. But it was this epic book, and it was a novel that was about this family in the outback in Australia, and their daughter was this beautiful young girl, and then she eventually grew up and the Catholic priest that was their priest for a while she they fell in love and I mean it was just this ridiculous you know I mean no not like it's not it wasn't a good book it was a good book but it was it was one of those bestsellers like if I read it now I don't know what I would think you know so I have not reread it but I reread it a few times when I was in my early teens and I just I think it was the love story it was and I realized like I some of the books that have made some of the biggest impressions on me it was like Michael Ondaatje's The English Patient too is another one and that also features this doomed relationship you know this this these taboo relationships that can never be but they're so romantic and beautiful and so though that English patient when I was in grad school but um the Thornbirds when I was you know like a tween basically and it was you know it was a naughty book and it was a naughty miniseries it was very sexually graphic um so but I just was so impressed by the story and so I started writing fiction when I was a kid when I was like 11 or 12 I wanted to write a story like the Thornbirds yeah. <laughs> Oh, good luck. So, yeah, that, that, those, and as I said, the English patient when I was in the 90s, when I was in grad school, I just thought that the incredible lyricism of the language and also the fractured narrative and the way that Andache wrote character and everything was sort of impressionistic. I don't know if you've read that book, but it is so beautiful. People know the, the movie, you know, and it was, a, it was a good, I mean, it was a really good film, too. I thought it was a terrific film, but the book is just, I mean, like it so often happens, you can do more in a book than you, I mean, you can do a lot of amazing things with film, obviously, but you just get to go so deep into character. And it was just, I mean, it's also like, I read all of his books up to that point too. um, And there were, there was like a prequel to that book called The Skin of the Lion, In the Skin of the Lion, I think it was. Um, And that was really beautiful too. It had some of the same characters as The English Patient. I just think, I mean, I haven't read much of his newer work, but I really was taken with his work for a while too. yeah. He's, I mean, he's, I think he was first known as a poet, and now, of course, he's known mostly as a novelist, but he's written nonfiction as well. It's, it, there's just that, um, it's just so, it, it's, not, it's not funny, it's just how, how we happen to be writers. You, you know, every single writer is just, uh, the good ones are utter fans of the medium, as far as, I, as far as I've known. And even the top bestsellers, they have the people they look up to and go, man, I wish I could write like that. And it's just, that's what's so awesome about just being kind of in this, no matter where you are in this, uh, in this, 
you know, continuum or the hierarchy yeah. or yeah. Yeah, there's there's people that you know it's just like oh my god, and they're still alive. Oh wait, and they're younger than me. Oh, how did they do that? And I need to talk to them. You know, <laughs> I know, and it's yeah. I mean, there there are like David Saloy is a couple of years younger than I am, and his last name is spelled S Z A L A Y, but. I looked him up and it looked like it was pronounced Saloy because I think it was on Wikipedia the proper okay, yeah. the proper pronunciation for his last name. But he's in his maybe his early to mid forties now. Yeah. But just the expansiveness of and all that man is was marketed as a novel, but it's actually ten short stories, but they're longer short stories, and there's only two that are really like like obviously connected because there's a recurring character in the first and last story. Yeah. But um, each of these. Um, 10 stories is about a man at a different stage in his life and it's chronological so there's like a young guy who's 17 or 18 in the first story or chapter and then the last chapter is I think he's a 73 year old guy and initially Saloy was he I think he initially titled the book Europa because it, it's about sort of the decline of Europe but it's also about men and anxiety over money and sex an identity. Okay. I'm in. I got to read. Tony, you would love this book. I bought like 15 copies and, and gave it to friends. Like I, it was their birthday. I'm like, okay, I'm sending them all that man is. And I mean, literally I must've given like bought 15 or a dozen copies and just yeah, sent yeah. them to people. I'm like, you have to, I mean, I don't know, maybe three of them read it. I don't know, but yeah. it's so good. Yeah. It is. So it was like one of those experiences, like a singular experience that you have maybe once a year, if you're lucky, where you read a book and you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, if I die tomorrow, at least I read this book. Yeah. And it, that is, like, why, I mean, another reason why I'm sure you feel the same way. You're a writer. Because it's so exciting when you encounter a mind like that. Yeah. And I, after I'd read the book, maybe even, like, a year or so after, I think I read it two years ago now, but Dwight Garner, I read his review of it last year from the New York Times, and he said the same thing. He's like, this book is incredible. He's like, this book is by... A writer who has incredible skills and he said something like something like this is someone who if you don't think he's great now he's going to be great oh, wow. like it was just I can't that's not exactly what he said yeah. but it was something like that he's just like he it was clear that he was incredibly impressed yeah. and, and that's and like that's what I think about in my head about my uh, you know like about the f Jesus jerk I um, instead of the reviews that it actually got I think in my head oh if he's not great now he's going to be great that's what I'm gonna put into my little mantra now oh yeah, yeah this was good and if, and, it, and this will put him on a path of greatness you know and I'll just pretend that was my review yes well you want to I mean basically I think we all need something to aspire to yeah, you yeah. know like I feel like you know each book that I've published, I'm happy they exist. I'm glad they got published, but I, I'm i like, well, I want my next book to be even better. And, and, and it's not like you can do that. And also it's so subjective, but you try regardless. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, I, I want, I always want the next one to kick its ass. Like it's almost to the point, and this is, this is probably why I need to read that book about the anxiety of men and stuff, but it, yeah, but I get to this competitive point where I, I'm just like, I want people to think that book was a piece of shit compared to what I got coming out. And this. <laughs> now, yeah, I mean, I think, well, also part of it is, I mean, this is a cliche, but it's like we want to be part of the conversation. You know, we want to yeah. be at the table. We want other writers to be like, oh, I read Tony's new book. Oh, my God, you have to read it. You yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah. so good. Yeah. And, and, you know, because like for the most part, writers are not 
that well known. We're not like musicians or actors, you know. I mean, rare is it that a writer's recognized on the street. Uh, I mean, Jonathan Franzen probably gets recognized somewhat often, but you know, it's like that's not the lot of most of us. You know, even writers who are extraordinarily successful, like John Updike, could not. It's not like he's getting. You know, like he's in rural America and they're like, oh, my God, it's John Updike. You know, it's not like Brad Pitt or something, but it's so interesting. It puts everything in perspective. No, it's it's something. So one of my first interviews I did was in 2001 with Chuck Palahniuk, you know, the author. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And so we we did it at this restaurant, uh, Jupiter in Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. Berkeley, Yeah. And um, so I'm sitting there and I'm going, here I am with. Chuck Palahniuk and I hope nobody interrupts us about how many people are going to come to the table and interrupt us no one interrupted us and I was just like they're being so polite because they know right and then so then he's like hey can you walk with me to the library because I got to meet my the escort the person who brought him yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, I got to meet my escort back there I'm like yeah sure well I'm walking through Berkeley with Chuck Palahniuk and I'm like oh here it goes we're you know they're they're gonna mob us and I'm just gonna have to sit back and then so nothing happens. We go into the Berkeley Library. I'm sitting there with Chuck Polinick and I'm like, I'm like, all these people, I know all these people are like, you know, going to go nuts over Chuck Polinick. And me and him are talking, and he's talking normal voice. And we're looking around. He's like, I can't find her, Tony. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And we're in the library for about 15 minutes, and nobody comes up to Chuck Polinick. <laughs> Wow. I mean, it's just the way it is because he's not on TV, you know, he's not on magazine covers usually other than like obscure writing magazines that like maybe, I mean, Poets and Writers obviously has a pretty good subscription base, but you know, even that like compared to people, I mean, it's a drop in the bucket. It's crazy. And that's when that, I mean, I want, you know, this was almost what, 18 years ago. That's when it had already been out. The movie had already come out. Yeah. And he was, was yeah, he was big. And I, that's when I realized I was like, "Wow, it doesn't. It, it, this is what. This is this is the Fight Club guy. And this is you know at that time I was just like worshiping anything he walked on. But um, that you know, and that's what you get. You get to walk around with a guy like me who's just interviewed him, and no one comes up to you, and he's wondering. He's like, "Oh no, that was a good meal. I wonder who I have to meet next." I mean, I think most writers who are, you know, they've been in it for a while. They realize, you know, there are, we have our people, we have our tribe. And it's a small, it's a relatively small tribe, you know. Like, even someone who's a perennial bestseller like James Patterson, he's not, he doesn't need a bodyguard. I mean, he goes to JFK, takes his flight to wherever. He doesn't need someone to escort him there, you know. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't need anyone probably to pave his way through a crowd of fans. Yeah. No, it's not like L.A., like where we are, you know. Yeah. It's like a riot starts if you, you know, if someone famous like George Clooney comes, you know, or Justin Bieber or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's just... It's, it's funny. I feel like it... Well, in L.A., I feel like it kind of depends on what part of town. I, um, I, I was in... Um, they call it Lassen's, but I always call it Lawson's. Oh, yeah, grocery store. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was there in Los Feliz, and, uh, and Andy McDowell was there a couple weeks ago. And I heard her voice first, and I was like... Oh, I just love her. That's so sweet. And I'm like, oh, she's she's just beautiful. You know, she's, I haven't seen her on the screen for years. I'm just like, wow, she still has that beauty. But um, she wasn't really being approached. She was just going about her business. And I'm like, oh, that's what I love about this part of town. Oh, yeah. No, you saw the eyes go kind of sideways and then go, oh, wow, nice. Yeah. And she probably is very highly 
sensitive to like the disturbance in the field when she walks through right. and like you sense like if you're famous you sense people looking at you yeah. I don't know if you have I haven't read it I bought it and actually Akashic Books and you probably know Akashic yeah, jo- Johnny Temple yeah. they published um, Justine's Justine Bateman's book on fame, fame yeah. I bought it and I haven't had a chance to read it yet but I was so interesting because I heard her on the moment that Brian Koppelman podcast and she was talking about it and just I don't know if you've read it I was just curious if you'd, if you'd had a chance but she just said so many interesting things about it but like fame it really is like it is it's like an absence of reality and the energy around famous people is different and I know I think she explores that a bit in the book and I I just find it it's such a curious phenomenon because it is almost physical I, I did I did read part of it and yeah it did blow my mind um, I, and there's something I think I think a lot more about I think since I've been in Los Angeles but I mean your your novel uh, touches on that too the the fame of um the, Ren Ivins. Yeah, yeah. I was just, you know, it was interesting because I was not living in L.A. when I wrote that book. It, I wrote it in 2011, and it was published in 2013. It was my first novel. And I'd, I'd been out to L.A. a number of times before. I mean, now, of course, I live here. But I just was so... And the first time I came to L.A. was in 2001, and it was in July. So it was two months before 9-11. And... I remember being kind of appalled. I was like, oh, my God, if you want to go anywhere, you have to get on the freeway. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's an exaggeration. Like, you can take surface streets. But if you have any distance to cover, obviously you don't. But I was just like, it's so, it just felt so strange. But the thing that I was so taken with, like, I, I came back, like, almost every year because my boyfriend at the time is from Rosemead, which is just, like, 20 minutes from Pasadena where I live now. And... Um, I just became more and more sort of seduced by the vibe here, which is, there's this, I mean, it depends on, of course, where you are, but there's just this feeling of suspense, I think, that sometimes you can tap into. And at the time, I was, I was about to turn 30, and I just felt this, I was so excited. Like, each visit, I progressively became more, and also I'd been a huge film fan for a long, long time, since I was a kid, so I was like, oh my god, movies, people, and I just, and also I just felt, it was sad, too, how, it's sort of like this feeding frenzy with famous people who, you you know, they're elevated to these incredible heights, and then they make one disastrous mistake, and of course, or maybe more than one, but it's the spectacle. It's like we're piranhas and we just want to feast on them. After, you know, it's so hypocritical and it's also so lacking in empathy. And I, Ren Ivins is not like a disaster or anything. He's probably, you know, a somewhat normal guy, you know, but of course he's extremely famous. And and I just wanted to look at how, have the opportunity to have whatever you wanted, any time of day, how that changes your character and that and, and, and but initially it began with that first chapter I wrote that as a standalone story months before I wrote the rest of the book and I just wanted to write about sexual jealousy and and, it, and especially about like if you had a famous father and you're an adult man all of a sudden like you're 20 or you're 25 or you're 15 and all the girls are interested in you because your dad is this famous actor who's also sexy like what would that do to you and that was where the book started and so of course that first chapter is about that very thing and then certainly it's a river that runs under the whole book but um I I yeah it was so interesting to me because just looking at the way Americans especially feel about celebrity we're so excited about it like so many of us care so much and I'm just like we don't know you know 
we don't know Andy McDowell. Like, she doesn't want to know us. Like, right. why would she? Why, maybe she'd be pleasant, but it's not like she's going to befriend us. But I think we have this illusion that we could be friends with these people. Right. And that, to me, was so interesting. It blows my mind. And I felt in a lot of, you know, like even like communication, like, what you know, how we're because I'll never do this podcast over the phone. I need to be in person because we can look in each other's eyes and we have a we have our nonverbal communication where famous people are getting the weird nonverbal communication constantly because they're getting those eager eyes and the oh. And I just I think that would just be a mind fuck unto itself even before it, the other fame comes. Yeah, I mean, how do you, like, and the thing is, people are like, oh, my God, I met so-and-so, and they were such a jerk. I'm like, um, they don't owe you anything. Yeah. Like, and also, like, maybe they were having a bad day. Yeah. You know, you, and I think about it as a teacher. Like, it's something, you know, with, like, for example, you you have students who you bend over backwards to help, and then one time you say no, and then they totally rip you in the evaluation. Yeah. And you're like, you're such a fucker. Like, what? I did everything you wanted, and then one time I said no? Yeah. And and it's like the same thing with celebrities. It's like maybe they're always nice, but they have one bad day because their cat got run over by the neighbor yeah. or their boyfriend cheated on them or their kid like was overdosed on drugs. I mean, you don't know. Right. Like and, and the thing, too, that I I mean, this is related to it. But the thing that I always find so interesting is people make such snap judgments based on appearances. And we often have no clue what's actually going on. And I feel like that's kind of at the heart of empathy is the idea that you don't actually know. You don't. Like, and maybe you're mad, but because you, someone sort of, you know, ignored you or what's the word I'm looking for? Not snuffed. <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? It's something related to like snubbed, okay. you know? Yeah. So, you know, someone snubbed you. It's like maybe it wasn't intentional. Maybe they just got a parking ticket like you don't know you know you're just dropping in with no context and that is just so dangerous I think and it's like the whole thing with our political situation too like people don't have enough curiosity about other people's experiences and that's and Ian McEwen said you know the fiction you know the heart of humanity is trying to understand the experiences of other people or like the heart of empathy or it's some it's some I can't remember now I had this quote on one of my syllabi but it's you know the the desire to understand other people's experiences at the core of our humanity and that's what fiction does and and so and people are like oh I don't read it I just read nonfiction. I'm like you're missing out <laughs> Exactly. So speaking of having happy days, Christine, thank you so much for making my day happy and coming on the show. Oh my God, it was so much fun. Thank you for dealing with my verbal avalanche. <laughs> Christine Sneed, everyone. She's the author of Paris, He Said, and Little Known Facts. Also the short story collections, The Virginity of Famous Men and Portraits of a Few People I've Made Cry. And keep coming back every Wednesday as we do the book talk. Except next week we have an exception, a documentary filmmaker. Throwing you for a loop, and I'll see you next Wednesday.